Good afternoon. It is my great pleasure to welcome you to the 34th annual Eunice Belgum Lecture Series. Um, we will be uh, having the first in the series of lectures today. There is, of course, a second tomorrow. And just to confuse you and keep you on detail, next, the, the next lecture will start at 3.30 instead of 4 o'clock. So be, be aware of that unusual detail of our organization. Um, but uh, let me spend some time talking to you a little bit about this lecture series. Um, Eunice Belgum uh, graduated from St. Olaf College in 1967. She was one of our most distinguished philosophy majors and philosophers. Um, the lecture series was established after Eunice's tragic death in 1977. The hope of this series is that the influence that Eunice has had on the discipline of philosophy will not end with her tragic death. Um, her impact on the profession, um, we hope, can continue as we explore in this lecture ideas that were central to her concerns. These included um, issues in ethics, philosophy of mind, and feminism. We are very fortunate today to have um, an eminent um, practitioner of philosophy of mind who we will introduce shortly. Um, but this is a, a clear continuation of um, Eunice's interests. Eunice received her PhD in philosophy from Harvard. Um, after leaving, uh, her, her dissertation was on acrasia, which is an interesting ancient notion of weakness of will. When you decide to do something, you're going to do it, and it just doesn't happen. Um, and those sorts of issues in moral psychology um, relating to philosophy of mind were also central for Eunice. Um, her dissertation was published posthumously by Garland Publishers. Upon leaving Harvard, she went on to teach at both Trinity College and the College of William and Mary. Um, these lectures are supported by a fund established by Eunice's family and friends. Um, I, I wonder if uh, Dorothy Belgum Knight is here somewhere. If you are, Dorothy, if you could just wave at me a little bit. Mm, I'm sorry that she's not here. <laughs> um, but we are deeply, deeply grateful to the Belgum family to, uh, for their efforts, their, their financial and supportive efforts in helping us to continue these sorts of philosophical reflections. Um, without any further ado, I'm going to turn to Professor Charles Tolliver, who will introduce our speaker for today. Excellent. Um, Lynn Rudder Baker is an absolutely world-class philosopher, and I think she's done philosophy pretty much all over the world. She's come to us from England where she was lecturing there. I met her in Hong Kong for, we, well actually we met earlier, but I got to become friends really with her and her husband Tom in a Sino-Chinese American conference. And then uh, some years ago she headed up a team of philosophers to do philosophy in Iran in the city of Qum, which is a, a Shiite uh, holy place. It's also not too far from the uh, nuclear enrichment program of the Iranians. I'm actually hoping that she's managed to get them to do philosophy rather than tinker with nuclear weapons. And I'm hoping we can get her to North Korea to get the <laughs> a nuclear free Korean peninsula. Okay. I know that's a tall order, but she did her PhD at Vanderbilt. She is the distinguished professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. I fell in love with her uh, writing and her extraordinary insights from her first book 
in the late 80s, um, The Saving Belief, A Critique of Physicalism. She has several books here. Uh, they're for sale. I got my copy of each, and I hope you'll get it, and uh, she's willing to sign it. There's also a handout, by the way, uh, when you come in the door, if you like. Just to say one more word about um, Professor Baker's work, I think that it has not just extraordinary you know, analytic skills and clarity um, and imagination, but it also has a kind of freshness. Uh, it's, the writing is as fresh as the first papers of hers and then that first book that I read. I mean, there's a kind of um, almost excitement that is uh, apparent. And also, I would say, dialogue in philosophy with uh, Professor Baker is also serious fun. So please uh, welcome her to this uh, lecture, uh, the first of two lectures. Thank you so much for having me here, and thank you, Charles, for that lovely introduction. The first lecture is entitled, The Place of Persons in Nature. My view of persons is idiosyncratic. Most philosophers seem to think that either we are essentially animals or that we are not wholly material beings. So-called animalists hold the first view that we are essentially animals, and mind-body dualists hold the second view that we are not wholly material creatures. I disagree with both. I always disagree with everybody. <laughs> the aim of this paper is to explain our place in nature as I see it, both our connection to the animal world and also our ontological uniqueness. Here's what I'll call the question. How can we both be connected to the animal world, a seamless whole with no breaks between human and non-human animals, and be morally and ontologically unique, importantly unlike anything else in the material world? Today I intend to answer the question, and tomorrow I'll discuss how, in light of that answer, we persist in time. As a preliminary, let me make some remarks about my, my use of words. First, when I say we, I mean entities like you and me, human persons. As, and I use the term human person interchangeably with human being. I do not use the term human being as synonymous with human animal or human organism. A human being is a human person. Sometimes I'll drop the human and just say person. Second, when talking about animals, sometimes I'll use the word organisms as a stylistic variant. Third, the word intentionality concerns the aim or directedness or aboutness of our mental states and actions. I exhibit intentionality when I seek out a water fountain. Finally, the word ontologically means pertaining to existence. So when I say persons are ontologically significant, I mean that persons are of a kind that genuinely exists and is not reducible to any non-personal kind like organism or brain. A claim, is, a claim is an ontological claim 
if it concerns what genuinely exists, what must be mentioned in a complete inventory of everything that there is. Now, I call, I call my account of the natural world constitutionalism. According to constitutionalism, every concrete entity known to us is constituted by other entities at lower and lower levels until we reach a level of physical particles. For example, a boat, say, may be constituted by a certain aggregate of planks at one time and by a different aggregate of planks at another time. The same boat may be constituted by different sums of planks at different times. So the relation of constitution is time indexed and allows for change in the constituting things, the planks, while the constituted thing, the boat, remains the same. And, and the constituting things, the planks, are themselves constituted by sums of smaller objects, from sums of cells all the way down to physical particles. Constitutionalism is materialistic in that every concrete entity in the natural world is ultimately constituted by a sum of mater material physical particles, probably different sums at different times. Now consider persons. According to constitutionalism, persons are essentially embodied. At each moment of a person's existence, there is a body that wholly constitutes the person. So constitutionalism rejects mind-body dualism. A person begins existence constituted by a human organism. So at birth, a person is constituted by a human animal but is not essentially the human animal that constitutes her. Thus, constitutionalism rejects animalism. The person and the animal are made up of exactly the same cells at the same time, a cells at the same time. So if a person is not essentially the animal that constitutes her, what distinguishes her from the constituting animal? A short answer is that mentality is essential to being a person but is irrelevant to being an organism. An entity may, can be an organism, even a human organism, without any mentality whatever. More theoretically, the difference between a person and a constituting animal is that the person has what I'll call a first-person perspective, essentially. For persons, the first-person perspective has two stages, rudimentary and robust. A first-person perspective is a dispositional property. It is not an object, nor is it something that one occupies. To have a rudimentary first-person perspective is to be disposed to perceive and to act upon the world from a particular spatio-temporal location. Such a perspective is first-personal because a conscious subject stands at the origin of its perceptual field from which she perceives the environment that she interacts with. A robust first-person perspective adds to the rudimentary first-person perspective a peculiar conceptual ability. The conscious subject has the ability to conceive of herself as herself from the first person. So a person with a robust first-person perspective can manifest her personhood in much richer and more variegated ways than can an infant with only a rudimentary first-person perspective. 
However, the infant is still a person, as we'll see. So let's start with the rudimentary first-person perspective. The stage of the rudimentary first-person perspective is shared by human and non-human animals. The rudimentary first-person perspective connects animals that constitute persons with other animals. A human infant is a person constituted by a human animal. An infant is born with minimal consciousness and intentionality, which are the ingredients of a rudimentary first-person perspective. A person comes into existence when a human organism develops to the point of being able to support a rudimentary first-person perspective. An animal may come to have a rudimentary first-person perspective contingently, but the new constituted entity, the person constituted by the organism, has a first-person perspective essentially. The rudimentary first-person perspective does not depend on linguistic or conceptual abilities. The rudimentary first-person perspective is found in many species, perhaps all mammals, and seems to be subject to gradation. Among biological species, consciousness and intentionality seem to dawn gradually from simpler organisms and the rudimentary first-person perspective seems to become more fine-grained as it runs through many, the many species in the animal kingdom. Considered in terms of genetic or morphological properties or of biological functioning, there is no discontinuity between chimpanzees and human animals. In fact, human animals are biologically more closely related to certain species of chimpanzees than the chimpanzees are related to gorillas and orangutans. Human infants, along with dogs, cows, horses, and other non-language-using non mammals, also have rudimentary first-person perspectives. So constitutionalism recognizes the continuity between human animals that constitute human infants and higher non-human animals that constitute nothing. In this way, the biological continuity of the animal kingdom is unbroken. But wait, if that is so, then why do I say that we persons are only constituted by animals and not identical to them? Although there's no, con there's no discontinuity in the animal world, no biological discontinuity, the evolution of human persons, or perhaps by natural selection, does introduce an ontological discontinuity, as we shall see. The ontological discontinuity between persons and animals lies in the fact that a human infant, but not a human animal that does not constitute a person, has a remote capacity to develop a robust first-person perspective. A human infant, a person, both has a rudimentary first-person perspective and also a remote capacity to develop a robust first-person perspective. That second is what distinguishes human babies from non-human animals, even adult animals like dogs. An animal that does not constitute a person may have a rudimentary first-person perspective, but it has no remote capacity to develop a robust first-person perspective. And this remote capacity distinguishes persons from all other entities. A remote capacity is a second-order capacity to develop a capacity. 
For example, a healthy human infant has a remote capacity to ride a bicycle. She doesn't yet have the capacity to ride a bicycle, but she does have the capacity to acquire the capacity to ride a bike. When the young child learns to ride a bicycle, then she has an in-hand capacity to ride a bicycle. That is, in certain circumstances, for example, when she has a bicycle available and wants to ride, she actually rides a bicycle and manifests her in-hand capacity to ride a bicycle. She may never learn to ride a bike, in which case her remote capacity to ride a bike would not issue in an in-hand capacity to ride a bike. Similarly, even though a remote capacity to develop a first-person perspective is an essential property of persons, it may never issue in a robust first-person perspective. If, for example, the person had a case of severe autism, Moreover, a being without a rudimentary first-person perspective, for example, a human embryo, lacks the in-hand capacity for consciousness and intentionality, and hence does not even have the remote capacity to develop a robust first-person perspective. If we don't put conditions on remote capacities, anything that anything has, any, has the remote capacity to develop any capacity whatsoever, an appropriate necessary condition for a remote capacity to develop a robust first-person perspective is that an entity have an in-hand rudimentary first-person perspective. Only but not all beings with rudimentary first-person perspectives have the remote capacity to develop a robust first-person perspective. The point is that an infant person not only has a rudimentary first-person perspective, but also has a remote capacity to develop a robust first-person perspective. Otherwise, the entity would not be a human person. So the ontological difference between persons and animals lies in the robust first-person perspective or in the remote capacity to develop one. With the rudimentary stage of the first-person perspective of pre-linguistic persons, but not of non-linguistic animals, comes the remote capacity to develop a robust first-person perspective. What makes persons unique is that only persons have robust first-person perspectives. If a dog learned to talk and acquired the capacity to conceive of itself in the first person, a new kind of entity would come into existence, a canine person. But the point would still hold. Only persons have robust first-person perspectives. To sum up, the rudimentary stage of a first-person perspective is a non-conceptual stage that entails consciousness and intentionality. The rudimentary stage is what ties us persons to the seamless animal kingdom. The robust stage is what makes us ontologically and morally unique. Now let's turn to what exactly a robust first-person perspective is. Unlike the rudimentary stage, which does not require language or concepts, the robust stage of the first-person perspective is a conceptual stage that entails the peculiar ability to conceive of oneself as oneself in the first person. A robust first-person perspective is the capacity to conceive of oneself as oneself in the first person without need to identify oneself by means of any description, name, or other third-personal referring device. 
Evolutionarily speaking, my guess is that the robust first-person perspective evolved along with natural language. Conclusive evidence of a robust first-person perspective comes from use of complex first-person sentences like, I wonder how I will die, or I promise that I will stay with you. If I wonder how I will die, or I promise that I will stay with you, then I am thinking of myself as myself. I'm not thinking of myself in any third-person way, not as Lynn Baker, nor as that woman, nor as the only woman standing in the room. Even if I had amnesia and didn't realize that I was Lynn Baker, I could still wonder how I'm going to die. Any entity that can wonder how she, she herself, will die, ipso facto has a robust first-person perspective and thus is a person. She can understand herself from within, so to speak. In order to have a robust first-person perspective, one must have a first-person concept of oneself, a self-concept. The second occurrence of I and I wonder how I am going to die expresses a self-concept. A self-concept cannot stand alone. It is a non-qualitative concept that is used in, used in tandem with other concepts. If I promise that I will take care of you, then I manifest a robust first-person perspective by expressing a self-concept, but also I manifest mastery of other concepts like promise and taking care. And it is in learning a natural language that one masters these other common empirical concepts that one deploys with a self-concept. Now Descartes was the modern inventor of first-person philosophy, but my emphasis on a first-person perspective is far from Descartes' philosophy. Unlike Descartes, I do not believe in any infallibility of our knowledge of our own minds. Moreover, again unlike Descartes, I have no ambition to be presuppositionless, nor to aim for absolute certainty. My view has many empirical presuppositions about ourselves, our language, and our environment. One acquires a self-concept by learning a natural language. To acquire a self-concept, one must have a battery of ordinary empirical concepts like hungry, fun, water, mama, concepts that one learns in learning a language. And one cannot acquire a language in isolation. On my view, if Descartes had really been alone in the world, except for an evil genius, it would have been impossible for him to entertain the thought that he was sitting in front of a fire in his dressing gown. There would have been no way for him to acquire concepts like fire or dressing gown, much less a self-concept, if he were in social and linguistic isolation. To sum up my idea of, a f of the first-person perspective, Whereas a rudimentary first-person perspective is shared by persons and certain non-human animals, a robust first-person perspective, the conceptual ability to think of oneself as oneself in the first person, is unique to persons. Human persons normally traverse a path from the rudimentary to the robust first-person perspective, from consciousness to self-consciousness. Now we can also see how constitutionalism differs from both animalism and mind-body dualism. Constitutionalism differs from animalism in holding that persons essentially have first-person perspectives, 
and are constituted by bodies but are not essentially the bodies that constitute them. And constitutionalism differs from mind-body dualism not by postulating any immaterial entities in the natural world. According to constitutionalism, every concrete entity in the natural world is constituted at every moment of its existence by something and the or something or other, and the constitutors themselves are constituted all the way down to microphysical micro particles. Whereas mind-body dualists take an immaterial mind to be an entity that is part of a person, constitutionalism takes the first-person perspective to be neither an entity nor a part of a person, but rather to be a property that belongs to the person as a whole. Thus, constitutionalism, unlike mind-body dualism, is materialistic, at least with respect to the natural world. The question, recall, the question, recall, is this. How can we persons both be connected to the animal world, a seamless whole, with no break between human and non-human animals, and be morally and ontologically unique, importantly unlike anything else in the material world? The Constitution view accommodates both the claims that the animal kingdom is seamless and that we are ontologically unique by holding that we are animals in that we begin existence wholly constituted by animals, and yet we are ontologically unique in virtue of having robust first-person perspectives. In short, we are on a continuum with the animal kingdom with respect to our origin, natural selection, but are ontologically unique with respect to our essential properties the robust first-person perspective, or that is the capa remote capacity to develop a robust first-person perspective. On the Constitution view, sums of molecules constitute people, but sums of molecules are fundamentally different kinds of things from people. So the difference in level between molecule talk and people talk is not just a difference in level of description, it is a difference in what is being talked about. The idea of constitution makes sense of this ontological difference between molecules and people. How can this be, you may ask? Part of the answer is that biology does not determine ontology. Biology is the science of organisms. Ontology is the study of what fundamentally exists. Ontology is a matter of what things there are and of what they are most fundamentally. And according to constitutionalism, there are persons, and persons most fundamentally are first personal, whatever their origin and whatever they are made of. I've just published a book called Naturalism in the First Person Perspective, in which I argue that first personal properties cannot be reduced or eliminated. Okay, you might say, but why does that fact, why does the fact that only persons have robust first person perspectives make an ontological difference. Why not just say that some animals develop first-person perspectives without constituting anything further and let it go at that? Good question. I have a two-part answer. The first part is theoretical. What makes an ontological difference is often determined by what a thing can do, by its causal powers, not by what it is made of or where it came from. 
Think of clocks. What makes something a clock has nothing to do with the materials it is made of and nothing to do with who made it or how. What is essential to being a clock is its intended function to tell time. Now think of persons. What is essential to being a person is its having a first-person perspective. It begins existence with a rudimentary first-person perspective and, and a second-order capacity to have a, ro a robust first-person perspective. But you might press on. Everything is unique in some way or other, so why, do, why does a first person, a robust first-person perspective or a capacity to have one make an ontological difference? The answer is that our robust first-person perspective makes an enormous difference in the kinds of things that we persons are able to do. Such an enormous difference in our causal powers that our biological similarity to, say, chimpanzees is overridden by our ontological dissimilarity to them. Here are some examples of ways in which persons are unlike animals that do not constitute persons. Item. We share with other species the ability to communicate with conspecifics, but only we human persons have a fully articulated language with necessity and possibility. Only we worry about the par paradox of the heap. W item, we share with other species the trait of having a perspective on our environments, but only we first-person perspectives, we first-persons, sorry, only we human persons have rich inner lives filled with counterfactuals. If only I had locked the door. Item, we share with other species methods of rational inquiry. The cocker spaniel sees the collie bury a bone. The spaniel reasons that he'll find the bone if he digs where he saw the collie bury it. So he digs there. But only we human persons deliberate about whether to go to college and attempt to rank pre preferences and goals and try to resolve conflicts among them and thus be rational agents. Item, we share with other species activities like self-grooming, but only we human persons have self-narratives. Item, <clears throat> we share with other species the ability to make things that we need, for example, nests, but only we human persons make things that we don't need, for example, enough nuclear warheads to eliminate the human race many times over. Item, we share with other species the property of having social organization, but only we human persons have war crimes tribunals, international film festivals, and black tie dinners. Item, we share with other species the property of having a first person perspective, but only we human persons have a first per robust first-person perspective that renders us responsible agents. All these differences between persons and non-human animals rest on our having robust first-person perspectives. Robust first-person perspectives bring with them a cascade of new kinds of abilities. We can see ourselves as individuals and as members of communities, we can plan for our futures. We can hold ourselves responsible for what we do. We can deceive ourselves. We can write memoirs. We can try to reform. We can have rich inner lives, and on and on. We persons are ourselves originators of many new kinds of reality. 
from catheters to cathedrals, from bullets to bell bottoms, from cell phones to supercomputers. One reason that I take this methodological stance is that it allows that the nature of something is tied to what is significant about that thing. What is significant about us, as even some animals, animalists agree, are our characters, memories, mental lives, and not the respiration, circulation, and metabolism that we share with non-human animals. To understand our nature is to understand what is significant and distinctive about us. And what is significant and distinctive about us, I have argued, are our robust first-person perspectives and what they allow us to do. So the first part of the answer to the question, why not just say that some animals develop robust first-person perspectives without constituting anything at all, and let it go at that, concerns the extent and complexity of our causal powers. Now the second part of my two-part answer to that question is this. If you, take, if you take us to be essentially animals, you disconnect what is significant and distinctive about us from what we fundamentally are. Animalists are forced to say, and they do say, that being a person is just a contingent property that some animals have during parts of their lives. According to animalism, the world would be no poorer ontologically without persons. If an evil genius took away all robust first-person perspectives, but left in place biological functions like metabolism, there would be no loss of entities. Exactly the same objects would exist as before. Quote, you could continue to exist without being a person, says the well-known animalist Eric Olson. Just as you could continue to exist without being a fancier of fast cars. Some will balk at a comparison that likens being a person rather trivially to being a fancier of fast cars, but I do not want to pause over this rather demeaning comparison. Instead, I want to give an argument against animalism, an argument that surprisingly appeals to science and technology. Here's the argument. If animalism were true, Biological properties like metabolism and circulation would be essential to us, in which case an animal could not survive replacing her organs with prosthetic devices. Such devices, whether inside the body like an artificial heart or outside like a dialysis machine, are no part of a living organism and hence no part of an animal. Something largely or wholly made up of, of artificial devices may behave like an animal, but nothing that depended on inorganic devices would be an animal. Hence, if animalism were true, a person could not survive replacement of vital organs with prosthetic devices. However, we know that persons can survive large-scale replacement of biological functions by prosthetic devices. The evidence that persons can survive large-scale replacement of parts by their organic bodies, in the, of their organic bodies, bodies by inorganic devices comes from an un, unimpeachable source, biotechnology. It is not a thought experiment but an empirical fact that persons already can survive replacement of many of their bodily organs by inorganic and robotic prosthetics. Pros, pros, this, you know, 
Recently, a woman who had been t totally paralyzed for years had a neural implant hooked up to a robotic arm that allowed the woman to use the arm to reach for a cup, raise it to her lips, and drink from it, all by thinking. We now have inorganic replacements for many body parts, knees, hips, hearts, etc. We have cochlear implants that enable deaf people to hear. The inventor of cochlear implants recently promised a bionic eye in the near future. So we should be prepared to accept the fact that a person can have a wholly organic body at one time and a large, largely or perhaps wholly inorganic body at another time. But animals are essentially organic and cannot be made of inorganic material. So a person is not essentially an animal since a person can survive what an animal cannot. Animals are essentially carbon-based and hence cannot survive having their organs replaced by non-carbon-based machines. By contrast, the only constraint on what can constitute a person, according to constitutionalism, is that it can support a first-person perspective, carbon-based or not. Animalism is simply not up to handling the astonishing changes that biotechnology has already wrought and has promised for the future. So what is our place in nature? We are part of the animal kingdom in that we begin existence wholly constituted by human animals on a continuum with other species. But our robust first-person perspectives allow us to be, among other things, rational and moral agents, not just to have goals, but to assess and change our goals, not just to do things, but to take responsibility for doing them. Among all the creatures, it is given only to us to decide how we ought to or want to live, to decide what sort of persons we want to become. We human persons have already changed the face of the earth, from skyscrapers to superhighways to strip mines. And with the development of genetic engineering, we are on our way to changing the course of evolution. We human persons occupy a unique position, part of nature, and yet to some extent controlling the nature that we are part of. Indeed, we may end up rendering our planet uninhabitable. So although human persons are part of the natural world, we are a distinctive part. The robust first-person perspective that human persons have, whether it evolved by natural selection or was specially introduced by God or came into existence in some other way, is a genuine novelty. The things that matter deeply to us, our values, our futures, our ultimate destinies, could matter only to beings with robust first-person perspectives. The robust first-person perspective thus ties what is distinctive about us and what matters most deeply to us to what we most fundamentally are. To sum up, we are material objects in virtue of being constituted by material bodies, in this world anyway. But we are not contingently animals in, virt in virtue of being able to be constituted by non, but we, sorry, but we are only contingently animals by virtue of being able to be constituted by non-animal bodies. What is required of our constituting bodies is not that they be animals, but that they be able to support our essential first-person perspectives. 
Animals can do that, but so can a, system, uh, so can a system of prosthetic devices. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is how we can be material objects without being essentially animals. Thank you. Yes. So um, we now uh, are ready to go. RTG, Jared. Thank you very much. This is a fascinating presentation. This is fantastic. Um, I'm curious to know, are you okay with machines being persons? I can't quite tell. Oh, you were so slow there. No, no, oh. no. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm free. I'm free. <laughs> I thought we were streaming. Um, we are streaming. This is better. Uh, mobile oh, nice. Um, I think that person, uh, now this is, I'm not really pretty, I'm not too sure about this, but I think that persons, as far as, I, as, far as we know, persons begin existing, ex with the exception of the incarnation, just put that aside. Per <laughs> persons begin, human persons begin existence constituted by human animals. So if we were to make an artificial person, we would have to, I think, bring it up the way we bring up human persons. That is, it would be something that would have to be, that would, but we would have to, we couldn't just start with tinker toys or whatever the uh, machine parts are and put them together and think that we're gonna get a unified object like a person. Um, I, th I think, that, so that I'm, I'm dubious. I don't wanna pronounce on whether or not we could make a person, but I'm dubious about that. Yeah, go ahead. As I say, I don't want to pronounce on that, but I do think that um, I, I'm really d quite dubious because I'm, what I'm dubious about is that the machine could actually have a self-concept. That is, I'm dubious not about that machine could have intentionality or consciousness. I guess I should be dubious about that too, but I, I put that aside because I think what, what really distinguishes us is the robust first-person perspective that requires a self-concept and, it, and that, I think, requires a natural language. And I must say, I have a slight Wittgensteinian streak that, that, would, that make, makes concepts dependent on language and language dependent on social and linguistic interaction. So that I think that if you were Robinson Crusoe and on a desert island all alone, you could not acquire concepts um, of, of the kind you would need to develop a first person, a robust first person perspective. But that's. Could you say a little bit more about what a self-concept, what's required for that? A little bit more about your notion of a self-concept? Say more about self-concept? Your notion of a self-concept. Okay. Yeah. My notion of a self-concept is a, um, um, it's a, it's a, a concept that's non-qualitative. And what each of us 
we all have self-concepts, but we all exemplify, let's see, we, we all share in the property of being persons. That's a property we all have in common. But each of us is a different exemplification of that property. And that, and that each of us, that means each of us has, um, each of our self-concepts is, is different, but not, it's, it's sort of like a hexaity. It's different, but not in a qualitative way, not necessarily in a qualitative way. So, so you could take a qualitative duplicate of me, and it wouldn't be me. And it wouldn't be, it would be a qualitative duplicate, okay, but it would not have be me. It wouldn't be this exemplification of a first-person perspective. Is that better? Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow I'll say more about persistence over time, and that's where that comes in. Um, Shall I repeat the question? Or? Yeah. <laughs> Just so everybody hears this, the question was about whether or not uh, non-human animals don't have the capacity to communicate and, and so mm -hmm. on, such that they could uh, achieve a robust first-person perspective, even though technically speaking they lack linguistic powers. Um, or, or you, if you could just enunciate a little bit more. Uh, yeah. I guess I don't think that, that, that our, our use of language, our, our use of counterfactuals, our use of, of our conceptions of possibility and necessity are just extensions of animal language. I think animal, and, or our understanding of ourselves internally, so to speak, our inner lives. I don't think they're just ex extensions of, of dolphins or some other animals that uh, I think dolphins are animals, or animal, uh, other animals that can communicate. Their communication is, 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 it seems to me, really tied to the rudimentary first-person perspective. I mean, it has to do with intentionality and consciousness, not with wondering how I'm going to die and that kind of stuff, those things. Those are, those are specifically, I think, those are, that, I took that to be a, a sufficient condition for uh, having a robust first-person perspective, to be able to wonder how I'm, for you to wonder how you're going to die, I think is a, uh, is, su is sufficient to make, to show, to show that you have a first, robust first-person perspective and you are a person. Okay, um, what's the mic? Um, yeah, just, just to follow up on, on Danny's question, I, I thought it was interesting that you characterized 
Yes, if that's important. Because when you think about it in those terms, I guess I guess partly it depends what kind of disposition you have in mind. But that's first personal disposition. But that seems <laughs> to favor the case for robots as persons, right? So if you can build a robot that that behaves in a way that sufficiently mimics human dispositions in terms of planning for the future, it hmm. seems like you've got personhood. But so maybe to clarify what kinds of dispositions you mean, how much of it, how much of the dispositions are sort of inside the head, or, or do you have, is it sort of a behavioristic? It's not behavioristic, no, it's not behavioristic. <clears throat> I don't actually, uh, th I think it's essentially dispositional in that I think a first person perspective, rudimentary as well as robust, is essentially dispositional. Just because to be to be a conscious being, you're still you still are a conscious being when you're sound asleep. You're not conscious at all, or you're in a coma, or you're under anesthesia. You're still a conscious being, but you're not manifesting it. All I mean by dispositional properties, I haven't, is that it's a property that you have that you can have when you're not manifesting it. So so that would, uh, and so I don't really know what to say about. Uh, what kind of uh, dispositions there are, I mean, besides consciousness, intentionality, the consciousness, the, the c capacity to think of yourself as yourself without thinking of any third personal de referring device. But I guess, so when I took philosophy of mind as an undergraduate, it's been a long time since I thought about these things, but I remember, you know, we talk about whether, like, like the thermostat could be right. conscious, right. and we talk about these different, more and more sophisticated devices. And as I recall, there are these people like out Dennett. there who say, yeah, well, you know, as long as they sufficiently mimic a responsiveness right. to the environment and some right. kind of primitive self-regard, right. that's what wow. consciousness is about, it's or self-consciousness. And there are other people who say, no, there's this phenomenological... Oh, so, uh, 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 I do, see. Do you have uh, a position I, on that? I see. That's interesting, because I don't actually, um, I don't... I do think, I think that well, there is a phenomenological aspect, but I didn't bring that out at all. I was just bringing out the dispositional bit. I, I don't want to see your question. But when you are manifesting consciousness, then there's something, I think, I would put it this way. The world is something in the world, some part of reality is present to you. And it's that presentness that is um, the phenomenological part. Um, so I do think there's a phenomenological part of this, um, but I, I'm not using that as part of the, uh, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't emphasizing that and I wasn't, I was sort of taking that for granted, that to be conscious is, or to have consciousness is going to be something like what it's like to be a bat. Uh, I would. 
I would. Now, but here's now here's something that I think your question brings up that I didn't, I haven't considered until your question, and that is that it could be that you lose the remote capacity to to um, uh, to ha develop a self-concept if you don't develop it at the right developmental time, so that so somebody a, a wolf, uh, somebody who's brought up by wolves in the forest, uh, then and is found when he's 16 years old as an France, I think that happened in the 19th century, found when he's 16 years old, maybe he will never develop a first-person perspective. Maybe he couldn't. I don't really know. Um, so I don't, uh, but I, at one point, he definitely had the remote capacity to develop a first-person perspective. And that would be enough to make him a person. A, a, human, a human animal with this remote capacity is going to, I think, constitute a person. No, 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 uh, no. In fact, I think. In fact, I think if I have one really basic commitment, it is non-reductionism. A first-person perspective is a is a dispositional property, maybe with a phenomenological aspect. Uh, is a first is a dispositional property that's a property of a whole, the whole person, or an animal ha that has a that has the rudimentary uh, first-person perspective. It, the first person rudimentary first person perspective is a property of the whole cow or the whole horse it's not a property of a brain or whatever it is that it, that implements or realizes or all those words they use vaguely in philosophy of mind um, uh, the 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 um, the first person perspective you cannot the, the you cannot in my opinion properly reduce the first-person perspective to any kind of internal bit about the brain. I think so. I think there's one reason I don't, don't do philosophy of mind anymore, because everybody seems to think, ah, we're going to understand what beliefs are if we understand what the brain, how the brain, how the brain manages beliefs. Hey, why on earth would you think that's what beliefs are? I mean, that seems to me a, I would say a category mistake. If you, uh, but anyway, that's yeah. They're still a person. I think I would say they're still a person, but I think because I think even people who don't actually get a first-person perspective because of severe autism are per persons because they're they are, but partly because of they they are constituted by animals. We all start off constituted by animals, no matter how many prosthetic devices we end up with. We start off constituted by animals, and any 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 human animal that develops a rudimentary first-person perspective then comes to constitute a person which has that rudimentary first-person perspective essentially and has this remote capacity to develop a, um, a, 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 a robust first-person perspective. The reason I say remote capacity as opposed to just capacity is that I don't want, I don't want to push personhood back to embryos. I don't want to push personhood back at all. I think, perf I think in order to be a person, you have to have a rudimentary first-person perspective and this remote capacity, this second-order capacity, 
to develop a first-person perspective. Yes. And um, I say that's one of the things that worries me. Um, and I think that it compels some of the animalistic perspective is that having lost touch with our animals, with size, we are um, out of touch with what we are and are doing terrible environmental damage as a result. Um, and, you know, part of your perspective could enhance that notion that we have to show off that we're different from the animals, and one way we show off is exactly the ways in which um, both in civilization and distant times we are, we are destroying um, existence. So I guess if I'm even to go with you, what is our responsibility, which you seem not to um, develop at all, to this other, I mean, you keep treating as evolutionarily we are more That's interesting because I never thought about evolutionarily we're not we're more advanced. I just thought of as we were ontologically different, and we do have different moral and ontological capacities. Um, th uh, in fact, that's what you were bringing out uh, from. I think we ought, um, well, I actually, there, as you know, as you no doubt know, because you probably get emails about this every day, the polar bears are in trouble. We have to save the whales. We have the baby seals. We have, I mean, it, 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 I mean, <laughs> I don't think, I'm not really too sure that in fact we're out of touch with other, our connection to other animals. Um, uh, even though I think we have a responsibility to other animals that they don't have to us. I think there's, that's part of the asymmetry, I think, that they don't have any responsibility to us at all, but we have a responsibility to them. Professor Corliss and uh, then in the back, but yes. Uh, well, I really enjoyed your talk. It was uh, pretty fun. And I do have one question. Um, when we got towards the end, I started to wonder if your test for an animal Animals aren't animals? Yeah. Because uh, I thought about you know, uh, uh, cochlear implants. Yes, 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 yes. Like start with a dog. Yes. And then go to a human being. So is that test going to make animals not animals? No. Uh, can you put a prosthetic on a dog? Right. Oh, that's a good, I think that's an excellent question. I think that's very good. I think if you put, if you, if you put all these, if, all, if a dog had all these prosthetic devices, it may not still be a dog. It may not still, it wouldn't still be an animal. And if dogs, dogs are essentially animals, I think. Uh, and so I think it wouldn't still be a dog. It would be a different thing. It would be, I think that's a, it would make a substantial difference to wait, to use Aristotle's term, in what that thing was. Just as, just as when God turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt, Lot's wife didn't exist anymore. It was a pillar of salt who was, that was right there where Lot's wife was. <laughs> but, um, but it's not like, but the, the <laughs> um, okay.
got the, the new leg, um, but once she gets the new leg, she's still fearless, but she's not like hot anymore, or she's not. She might still be yours because, I mean, property has got its own problem. <laughs> it, it it, but it might not be, uh, I think with a new, a new leg isn't enough. But she's had all these other things. Yeah, she's had all these other things. Okay, I, and I've, I certainly haven't tried to uh, set a, a tipping point. In fact, and in fact, in fact, I, uh, let me just make one last point, point about this. I believe in, unlike most other philosophers, again, I believe in ontological vagueness. I think everything we know of in the natural world comes into existence gradually. So there will be indeterminacy in when exactly does it start. And I think that's true of animals. I think it's true of persons. I think it's true of solar systems. I think it's true of cars. I think it's true of everything we know about in the natural world. And why philosophers insist on saying there's no ontological vagueness. It's all semantic. It's all just our choice of how to use our words beats me. Okay. I know we have back, but I think, Janine, do you have something? Yeah, just briefly. I want to extend, and in fact, it's kind of in a follow-up to what you're saying about ontological business. Um, it was a really a dual description, just like it's right. Um, <laughs> People say that. Because you were saying two kinds of things. Um, there are animals, and there are persons. And persons are, in, in the language of the movement of Peter, the ontological things of things. They're right. different Absolutely, absolutely. I think I'm not a dualist, I'm a pluralist. That is, I think there are indefinitely many different, what I call primary kinds. That is, so, so that, for example, um, I think a, a salt molecule is different from just a, a bunch of atoms that are sodium and chloride. Because if you had a bunch of atoms that are sodium and chloride, but they're not bonded, you don't have any salt molecules. So I think that uh, I think that this constitution idea goes all the way down. So and so and so there, everything is constituted by something else. So you don't have just two kinds of things in the world: animals and persons. You have molecules. You have atoms. You have oh, uh, you have all kinds of artifacts, different kinds of artifacts. So. I think it's extremely pluralist. A lot of people say bloated. I think that if, 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 if animals thought, I wonder how I'm going to die, uh, not, not be animals being led to the slaughter who go, you know, are terrified, not, but just sort of, you know, like us, we're just doing all right now. We're not, most of us don't have terminal diseases that we know about. 
uh, and we, and we, but we, we can still wonder, you know, I wonder how I'm going to end up. I wonder how I'm going to die. And I think we, if animals could do that, that we would have some evidence, the same way we have evidence, we have our evidence is linguistic. I tell you, I'm telling you, that I wonder how I'm going to die. Uh, and that's, and that's, that's good evidence for you to know that I wonder that. If you have a non-linguistic being like a dog, there would be no way to, for, there would be, I think there's just no evidence for that. And I just think there's no reason, reason to think that animals have that kind of sophisticated mentality without, especially without language. We have another question, but did you want to follow it up? About what? Um, no, a complex thing. idea. The, uh, dolphins were showing evidence of complex ideas oh. that weren't prompted by um, training. So. And they communicated with each other. So That's another thing that, I mean, I've, I've, I'm really familiar, or much more familiar with Gordon Gallup's uh, e uh, experiments with chimpanzees and how they could, he could teach them to recognize themselves in a mirror. Um, but I, but the fact that chimpanzees don't always do that now, they didn't, that didn't, I mean, we taught them that. We taught, so if we, if you trained dolphins to do that, um, that strikes me as not, especially if dolphins then don't pass it on to their offspring, um, that strikes me as just not, uh, 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 not a, a counterexample to what I'm, I'm saying. Okay, we have uh, at least three questions and We'll be um, sort of winding up, and, and should Professor Baker will be available for further <laughs> conversation, Mr. Uh, Prime Minister. Uh, <laughs> 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 so I also wanted to clarify. Um, uh, I, I got a different idea of what actually constitutes a person from your response to the, the question about being brought up with wolves and uh, having a remote capacity that is undeveloped into that robust first-person perspective, and. Um, I'm wondering, and then, and then going to Ethan's question about um, whether uh, personhood or that, that remote capacity is able to be mapped onto some biological thing like neurons. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm a little confused how, because uh, the remote capacity seems to be something that can be, uh, you know, recognized as a more biological thing than taking a step further and developing into a, a uh, robust perspective. So. I'm just curious as to how you defend uh, the remote capacity being what constitutes a person as opposed to the developed capacity with ro robust uh, first personal perspective. Uh, let, me, uh, let me say two different things to that. One is that I think brain research is a really important, and I don't, mean to, I don't mean to denigrate it, I just don't think that's what a first person perspective is, is neurons firing. I just don't think that's the right kind of thing for a first-person perspective. Um, and then what was the other thing? Say again, we'll ask. I'm just like, if any, if the capacity to develop a first-person perspective is traceable to, uh, you know, a, a specific layout of the brain. Even if there is, um, even if there is a, a specific layout of the brain that makes for a first-person perspective, and there may be. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have any idea. I don't think anybody has any idea. 
it wouldn't mean that that's what a first-person perspective is. That I would say it just means that's what enables us to have a first-person perspective. That's the mechanism. Brains are mechanisms. They are not organs of thought. They're mechanisms by which we think. This is, our legs are our legs. We don't. Our legs don't do the walking. We walk, and our legs are the way we walk. Moving, uh, also, riding a bike. Oh, this is what I want to say about the remote capacity. Riding a bicycle is. A, uh, do you suppose that you can you could take a, a human infant and once you had a complete brain map, you would know whether that human infant had a remote capacity to ride a bicycle? I mean, I just don't. I just don't. I think that's just the wrong kind of thing to suggest. Uh, uh, um, but I don't. But I don't mean to say that there's uh, uh, that there's any any limit to what you can find out about the brain and neurons and what neurons support what. Um, okay. Yeah. Well done. Uh, so uh, we have two questions. Here. I'm already taken care of. Okay. Um, Well, right, absolutely right. But I don't say that they, what they can teach chimpanzees to do is to recognize themselves in mirrors. That is when you first, that is before the training, a chimpanzee sees, a, sees itself in a mirror and thinks it's another chimpanzee uh, and reacts to it as if it's another one. Then they, um, Gordon Gallup, this was ages ago, he um, he took the chimpanzees, he anesthetized them, he put red marks in places they couldn't see in themselves. First, oh, first he kind of trained them up with the mirrors in some way. Then he um, uh, brought them, you know, let the anesthesia wear off. And, and they, then they would go back in front of the mirrors, and then the next thing you know they would go, oh, you know, as if they were seeing themselves and seeing it as themselves, not just seeing a conspecific with red mark, but, uh, but seeing it, ah, yes, itself. Um, that, that, I think, he called it self-recognition. And I agree it's self-recognition, but I don't think that's enough to make it to be this conceptual capacity to think of yourself, to conceive of yourself in the first person. I think that's a discriminatory capacity, a first personal. It's first personal, okay, I think. But it's just a discriminatory capacity, not a conceptual capacity. I think we do have, uh, okay, the final two questions this time. Uh, please, sir. Yeah, so I guess I'm just going to ask an age-old question. So you said the brain was the mechanism of the first-person perspective. Might be. But it is not the first-person perspective. But you also said the first-person perspective is not a physical object, a physical it's entity. Right. So well, then it's the same problem as Cartesian dualism. How can a physical brain Oh, because it's a property. A property is not physical or not or f physical or non-physical. A property is just. I think it can be. I think that people, immaterialists, think that there's some properties that can only be had by non-material things like souls. I don't think that. I think that all properties can be had by anything. I mean, well, it depends. But 
but the, that's, there's not that kind of, you don't have to worry about, it's not, it's not a physical property. It's, not a, it's just a property. It doesn't have to be physical. It's a property of whole persons. And whole persons are physical in that, in, this, in my sense of material, in that they are constituted wholly by material things, at least in this world. So I'm told we have the room until 5.30, so we're going to keep going. And um, so store up your questions and get them out there, Justin. Uh, we'll see you, Professor Byron. It might, it might. If it if it has a what well, it has a if it has a root if it has intentionality and consciousness. You say a third term, third. A third term. Yeah, right. It could be easily. It could be a a late term fetus. Could be, I don't have any. I don't have any. I don't take, think take there's a. Um, because I think that you have to put some kind of limits on what a remote capacity can be. Otherwise, we could say, you have the remote capacity to turn, well, like Parfit, turn into Greta Garbo, because we could take one atom at a time out of you and one, and one little thing at a time and change it over time, over a real long time, and you'd end up being at least a, a, a replica of Greta Garbo. But uh, but uh, okay, not Greta Garbo. You could t if you but you could they could you could be turned into something entirely different, and have the remote capacity to be something entirely different if we didn't put limits on what can what a, on what a remote capacity can be. And the limit I think is that's appropriate in the case of persons is, you have to have a rudimentary in hand rudimentary first person perspective that is consciousness and intentionality in order to have the remote capacity to have a robust first-person perspective. I just think that, I mean, I just stipulate that as a reasonable uh, constraint, but with the argument that you have to have some kind of constraint or we would have, anybody could be, you could have developed, you could develop a capacity to fly. You don't have one. Oh no, you don't have. Uh, um, uh, I don't know. I would say I, I haven't thought about remote capacities to have a rudimentary first-person perspective at all. I just think that uh, as a as a human fetus develops, it develops consciousness and intentionality at some point. Maybe at birth. Maybe before birth. Uh, I don't know. Maybe 
able to be expressed much more fully in his language. But why was his self-concept changed by just acquiring language? What I was thinking was that um, I, I sort of agree with Hume on one thing, one thing only. <laughs> and, and that is when I look inside myself, I don't find another thing. I don't find something that's myself. Um, that is, so that I think the self-concept is always used in conjunction with other concepts. Um, so I don't think that she had a self-concept before she got that, before the water, She's, and she, under, she caught on to what, what, what water was. Um, but I think she had a lot of um, um, gra um, gr ground laying beforehand that was linguistic ground laying beforehand. And then when she caught on, that was sort of a, uh, that really probably was a tipping point. But that the, the, the groundwork had been already laying, the linguistic and social groundwork had been laying for a, lot of th a long time before, um, before that happened. And, but I don't think that she automatically got a self-concept at that moment. I, don't, I, I think that you don't have a self-concept until you have a lot of other concepts, uh, uh, an un, unspecifiable number and kinds of concepts, but the kinds of things that little children learn, like, you know, mama, fun, hungry, food, you know, uh, those, those kinds of concepts. No, I don't. But that's. But I do. But I. T I take it that. Um, um, that by natural selection, we have come to be intentional and conscious beings. Uh, uh, and now, what intentionality is? I mean, we have a better grasp on what intentionality is than we have on what consciousness is. Uh, I think. Um, but that those things are. Um, are now hardwired. Into us, but I don't have any idea of. I would say, I think that I would say, I mean, I know I would say, I'm an emergentist. I'm a real hardcore emergentist, and I think that that the different properties emerge and are not reducible to what happened before. Um, uh, but they're di they're only <clears throat> they're different properties, but they're not. It doesn't make me a dualist. I think, uh, even though they're different properties, the same way the property of a molecule is being a salt molecule is different from the properties of being a sodium atom and a chlorine atom. But, but that, 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 and there's a different properties, completely different properties, I think. But that, but that, that doesn't make you a, a, a molecule dualist. Right. Actually, I don't. I've not. Um, 
I guess I don't really find it so mysterious, but that may be a, just my lack of imagination. Um, uh, because it just, it seems to me it's just sort of, it happens in the course of things. And, and let's see, what Searle said one time, uh, he said, consciousness is just a neurobiological problem. It's not any, it's not any kind, there's no hard problem of consciousness, it's just a neurobiological problem. We know that the brain, he says, we know that the brain causes all this technicolor phenomenology. Just the question is, what is it in the brain that does what? It's not a matter of, does it happen? We know what happens. Well, I feel that way about consciousness in general. We know what happens. We know we're conscious. Um, and then how it happens is a, I think it's probably, maybe it's even a scientific question. No, I think I meant remote in both cases. Okay. But once you have the capacity, you have an in-hand capacity. I made this distinction is from um, Passnow in his book on, on Aquinas and human nature. And that, that I thought that was a great distinction between a remote capacity and an in-hand capacity. Uh, uh, so I would, that's, what I, was, that's the, what I was drawing on was his distinction. So, I, so you, you don't have a... You don't have a, a your, your capacity to develop a, a first-person perspective, a robust first-person perspective, is remote as long as it's not in hand. Um, yeah, did you want to follow up? Or? Yeah, I can. Um, just maybe just a little more clarificatory question. So you can uh, you mentioned Searle, so he had. Um, so I just want to make clear. So you you keep saying that um, the, these essential properties that constitute uh -huh. But I presu presume that you would agree with Searle that they're causally reducible, but not ontologically reducible? I don't know. I, would, I don't agree with Searle as much. People seem to think I should, <clears throat> but I don't. Um, uh, I don't know about causally reducible. I don't know what that means exactly. I, uh, I think redu reducibility seems to me an ontological idea. That. Uh, uh, it's not just causal sufficiency. I'm sure there's causal sufficiency for most things and most everything. Um, but I don't think that has to do with reducibility. Okay. Uh, this is going back to your idea of self-concept. Um, I'd like to make an argument that my dog is a person and, and how you claim a person is. Um, when my mom leaves, he waits by the door until mm -hmm. he comes back. Uh, when he wants food, he goes by his bowl and he doesn't talk but he communicates in moving his bowl and barking and whining that he wants food. Um, that would be the rudimentary. And the robust, I feel like, comes in where, going back to the mirror example, the first time he saw himself in a mirror, he growled, he thought it was another dog. But we never taught him that it was another dog. He grew to understand that that was him. He was he did? able to conceive that that was him and that he has no need to attack the mirror because it's just himself. So in that sense, isn't he a but I would take that to be just a discriminatory uh, ability. That is, just that you can just discriminate uh, between a conspecific and himself. But that's not enough to be a person, I think. But, but it's close. <laughs> 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 
say I am sort of I am kind of a neo-Aristotelian but I don't I'm not a, a matter form kind of person at all uh, in fact I think I think Aristotle's idea of matter form doesn't work because matter individuates but can't be individuated so we can't say this is the same matter as that you can't say that in, in an Aristotelian talk um, and so I and I think so I don't want to I don't want to say that and I don't think that he is, I mean, I don't, I don't like that. Uh, furthermore, I don't like his, his um, complete emphasis on the ontological primacy of, of animals, of species, not of artifacts. And I think artifacts are as real as we are. And I think we are as real as electrons. Of course, he would have may have thought that, that too. But I think that, the, that, that artifacts are as real as we are, and I, and I think we are as real as electrons. So that's part of my non-reductionism, too. So there's much to be unhappy about though, when it comes to Aristotle, because it's not enough adjusting to that. But I'm, I, I like Aristotle. He's, as I say, him, kind of a neo aristotelian mm, I'm not saying, but he would think that you're essentially a rational animal. And I would say, well, uh, if you, you're essentially, essentially you have a, a first-person perspective, either rudimentary or robust, or potential or remote capacity for robust. But if you had only a rudimentary first-person perspective and were a person, you wouldn't have, you'd have the kind of rationality that a dog might have, but you don't have the kind of rationality that we have, where we can, we can inspect our own thoughts and inspect our own. Um, <laughs> Uh, right. Okay. See that. See, here's my, here's my authority. <laughs> yes, I'm glad I'm here. And uh, we've got three minutes, and over to you. Okay. So I just have a quick question about um, physicality. And about what? Physicality. Physicality. Oh. So, um, if a person is only having the property of being physical in a derivative way through its constitutionalization. Uh, constitutional relationship with the body independently from that constitution what is the material status of a person I think a person is a material being because a person is here's my this 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 is also a peculiar idea of material beings I think the body a person is a material being because a person is wholly constituted at least in this world by material beings either by an animal or by a bunch of prosthetic devices or something else, because we're always constituted by material things. That's what I mean by material. And I shouldn't, and I, I think I try not to say, I did say, talk about microphysical particles, but I shouldn't talk about physical, physicalism because that sounds as if I think we, are, we can be explained in terms of physics. I do not think we can be. So I don't want to, I mean, so I want to, actually I will distinguish between my idea of material and the physical, physicalist idea of physical. Uh, 60 seconds, yes. 
So, say that last sentence again. So, um, at least in some psychological literature, concept learning is uh, distinguished as a concept of, of a kind of discrimination between distinct, between distinct physical or conceptual entities. So it seems like our maybe a robust conception of self is simply a more complex form of uh, discriminatory conception of self-identity and not in itself Um, actually, the psychological literature, I think, does not speak with one voice on, 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 the, on concept learning and whether or not it's just a discriminatory ability. It's one, yeah, that's one way you could look at it, but uh, um, I actually, uh, I'm not too sure, uh, uh, I really just don't take that as authoritative. Okay. Uh, I thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much.